We're just going to read our Bibles for a little bit. If you've got a Bible, feel free to open it up. Uh, We're going to be reading from John chapter 20. If you haven't got a Bible, as Stephen already said, there's a bunch up the back. You can grab one of those. If you want to borrow it for a minute, you can. If you want to borrow it for the rest of your life, you're more than welcome to. So John chapter 20, and we're just going to be reading the first nine verses. This is, of course, about the resurrection being Easter Sunday. John 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. We'll leave it there. Thank you. Let's pray. Blessed Father, we thank you for this word that we've just heard. And we ask, O God, that you would plant it as a seed uh, deep in our hearts, that it would uh, really take over our whole life, and, and that it would not just be an old, dead word on an old page, but that it would be full of your power uh, and would actually breathe new life into our lives. Uh, We pray this um, desiring that you would get all the praise and glory for any change that would take place in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Um, Yeah, I don't know if you were ever in drama class uh, back in high school maybe, and maybe it turned out the play you were doing that season, maybe it was like the one I was in, at age 16, I was not given a large part. I spent almost the entire play backstage, and then I came out for my one line. Um, But then imagine a different character in the drama club. They had such a big role in the drama that they were on the stage almost every scene. Now, I want you to think about the Gospel of John. He says he's writing this book for a very particular reason. He's saying, I'm writing these things. I could have written you a whole lot more stuff about Jesus, but I wrote you these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might actually have life in his name. So he says that he's writing this for that purpose, and if his gospel is a big drama on a stage, a true drama, true history, which character 
is in almost every scene in the story of John's gospel. This character hardly ever gets to go back uh, stage and change costume and get a drink of water. Who is almost always right there, kind of stealing the show? It's Jesus, right? So that's the right answer in church. <laughs> Jesus, he, and it's true. That, that's the answer I wanted. So Jesus is the, the main character, of course, right? So, um, but not, not in John 20, 1 through 9. Not in the part Phil just read for us. Where is Jesus? We do not know where he is. That's what Mary said, and she would know. She was tracking with Jesus for a long time. Mary Magdalene was someone that got zero respect in the community. People knew she was like problem woman, and if you just wanted to capture that in one sentence, you could say she's the one out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. And everyone would kind of nod their head and say, oh, I know what that means. But do we know what it means? I don't quite know what that would be like. I, I can imagine all the evil and trouble in my own life without any demons. And then, what if I had one? That would make all of my natural trouble that much worse, right? But then what if you had seven? So controlled, so under the oppressive thumb of the powers of darkness until the Lord and giver of life stood before Mary Magdalene one day and freed her from everything that entangled her. And so Mary's life was never the same after she met Jesus. She was, she was free. She was liberated. She was whole. She had integrity, dignity, even if no one else cared about her. And she would know that Jesus was absent, and she runs to tell Peter and John that Jesus, we don't know where he is. So Jesus' absence here is a real problem, not just because Mary Magdalene had reason to be personally thankful for how he changed her life, but do you see that if Jesus stays dead, this is a problem for Mary Magdalene. Seven demons used to control her life until Jesus freed her from them. Jesus, as long as he's around, Mary is safe. But if Jesus is dead, what about Mary's life? How do we know that, that 14 more troubles might come into her life next week if Jesus stays dead? What about all those people Jesus healed? He healed a blind man. He raised up a paralyzed man. Uh, eventually, each one of them is going to die. And so how relevant will that season of healing and strength, the new life, be for them if this whole story comes crashing to the ground? Because the main character who promised more than just temporary healing, he promised life abundant and eternal. If he's dead, this is a problem. And then you have Peter and John running 
to the tomb after Mary tells them. Now, Peter and John, they had been with Jesus three, three and a half years, listening to all of his teaching. And they knew by this point in time, after that logging that many hours and days and years with Jesus, Peter and John both knew Jesus' teaching was not a bunch of random principles and coffee table quotations. You know, you're at someone's house and you open up that pretty little book in their living room. It's like, oh, a, a quotation from some philosopher. Oh, here's one from the Buddha. Here's one from Jesus. Oh, nice. And then, no, Peter and John knew that Jesus' teaching wasn't just something that could survive on a coffee table 2,000 years later on its own. That if Jesus stays dead in the tomb, his teaching isn't worth putting on a fortune cookie paper, right? Because the center of Jesus' teaching wasn't a new idea or a new philosophy. The center of it all was himself. He had made it very clear, come unto me and I will give you rest. Now, if he's dead, he cannot give anybody rest. Dead men don't give anything much. And so Mary Magdalene, standing there in the dark on the first day of the week, and then running to tell Peter and John this troublesome news, they have taken his body, a lot is at stake. So much that we appreciate concerning Jesus would be a moot point if he stayed in the grave. His teaching, his life, would it be invalidated? Would it be pointless if he stayed in the tomb? That is what John in his gospel is implying. And so John goes on to talk in the last few pages, you can read them later today, of his gospel, about seeing and believing. And right there in the last part of what we did just read, he says that for him personally, he went into the tomb, he saw the evidence, he saw and he believed. And we think that's the natural chronology. I came, I saw, I believed. But if you flip the page and keep reading John's gospel, he says, you know what? Actually, he has Jesus saying this because Jesus really did say it. Jesus said, blessed is the person who hasn't seen and yet believes. And John is writing this whole gospel for you and for me, people who have not seen any of the evidence, and he's believing that we will actually believe it also and that we'll be even more blessed because of it. The problem with our seeing and our believing is that our judgment is not exactly as sound as we think. Our rationality is questionable. Now, if you don't believe me saying this about you, let's just talk about somebody else, not you. So we'll exclude you. You have sound judgment. Present company excluded. But those other people, those gullible people out there. So a few examples. Seeing and believing. What does it take? So you know that gambler that you know at work? Like he's working on his footy tipping and he's... It's like, dude, that team, 
You have this sentimental attachment to your team because you grew up cheering for them, but please don't put good money on that team. And yet he is. He believes. And, and once again, he loses it, right? What, what is it that frames his mind and his thinking that he's like, this time I got a feeling, and of course he's wrong. Or that friend of yours at the nightclub, it's karaoke night, and uh, they step up to the microphone, and you're like, oh, I'm going to go to, <laughs> I think it's time to go to the restroom or something. It's like, I can't deal with this, because they think they are the next pop star. And once again, doesn't matter how much someone has had to drink, they're up there making a fool out of themselves. Why? They think of themselves other than what they are. And this, they believe that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a rock star. Or maybe in a more serious setting, you finally work up the courage to go to your mother and confront her because for years, it just bleeds out in every conversation, these little comments that you are convinced are racist comments. And so you, you go to your mom to talk about prejudice and what does she say? She's like, oh, I so agree with you. Because what is your mother thinking of? Someone who's more blatantly racist than she is. And she doesn't get the point. She doesn't connect the dots. And you walk away more frustrated than before. Now, maybe you're both in the dark on the details of that argument that you have. We usually are when it's just a generational squabble over definitions. But what if it is something very serious in our life? Someone confronts us, and we just don't see it. We refuse to see it. I think of myself as a good person. Nothing you say will call that into question. I'm walking around in a fog, something worse than a COVID fog. This is a fog that hampers my judgment about ultimate reality. Now, in John's Gospel, in chapter 20, Mary Magdalene is walking around in the dark. That seems just innocently circumstantial darkness because it was very early in the morning. But you know how John writes his Gospel. Every detail of John's gospel potentially has multiple levels of meaning. I mean, this is the guy who has Jesus say to Nicodemus, you must be born again, and that can also mean you must be born from above. I mean, this is the gospel where Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life. And we're thinking, how can you be bread? What is this metaphor? Or Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And knowing that John makes a big deal in his gospel over light and dark, it's no mere circumstantial detail that Mary Magdalene is walking around in the dark by herself trying to interpret reality and doing much better than most of us would, but not good enough. She admits to Peter and John we don't know where they have placed the body of Jesus. She's admitting her ignorance, but at the same time, it's ironic, her statement of ignorance 
is itself ignorant, right? And, and a lot of us, we will admit that, oh, you know, I'm not God's gift to the world. I'm, not, I'm no expert. But, but our statement of humility doesn't go deep enough, right? She says, we don't know where, where they have placed him. What does she know? Mary does know that they have placed him somewhere, that they have stolen him. So even in her statement of ignorance, she's not aware of how ignorant she is. There she is. What is she ignorant of? Not merely does Mary not know about the location of Jesus. Mary doesn't know what time it is, what day it is on the calendar. She has no idea that she is standing there on the first day, not just the first day of the week, but the first day of a brand new world. She is seeing something. When she sees that stone rolled away in the empty tomb, what is Mary seeing? She's seeing a sight more significant than the sight Adam first saw when he opened his eyes in the Garden of Eden and looked at all the trees. He's, Mary Magdalene saw something there at the tomb more significant than what Noah's dove flying over the floodwaters looking for dry land saw when it saw that first green plant on Mount Ararat. Because what Mary Magdalene has seen in the darkness was evidence of the first day of a whole new world. It is as if the first world from Genesis chapter 1, starting out in the darkness, let there be light and there was light, that world that the Lord made, it's as if that world, that era of time, progressed until the death of Christ on the cross when the sun refused to shine and darkness came over the land for three hours, right? And then we have a little gap <laughs> between the two worlds on Saturday. But what happens on the first day of the week? Christ rises from the dead. The, the sun is now shining truly with all of John's multiple levels of meaning. Christ is shining. This is a new day. This is a new world. We are setting the clocks to a new time zone. The first day of the week, the first day of the new world. But Mary doesn't know that. What she thinks they know is that they have stolen Jesus' body. Now, this is our first clue as to what is keeping Mary Magdalene in the dark. You and I have our own issues that are keeping us in the dark. But what kept Mary Magdalene in the dark was she was locked, understandably. She was entrapped in an us versus them mentality. All she can think of is the enemies, them. They have done it. And it's understandable that Mary Magdalene thought this because they, the enemies, had done a lot of unjust, hateful, self-destructive things. They had arrested an innocent man, Jesus. They had put him through several bad trials, unjust trials, 
They had tortured him against their own law. They had crucified him at Skull Crusher Hill outside the city of Jerusalem. And then they had actually buried him. They had actually done all those things. But at this point in her life, Mary Magdalene was unable to see it from God's true perspective. She didn't understand that not just they had done this, but that we, all of us, had done it. That our sin was the reason why Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. So our rebellion against God, our failures, our willful, voluntary hatred of God is what ultimately led Jesus to go to that skull crusher hill and be broken for us. Mary didn't yet see that we have done this, nor did she see the deeper and more wonderful truth that God had done this. God, for his own glory, he, in love for us, had given his one and only son, Jesus, for us. That the ultimately a sovereign God, for his own glory, in love for us, was giving Jesus all Mary could see was they have done this. Mary, you want to tell her. As, as if we would have had the insight we wouldn't have. But, but you want to come alongside Mary because she's so sad and say, Mary, they haven't done it. They, they would have no power to do anything to Jesus unless that power were given to them from God. Mary, they haven't placed Jesus anywhere. God has placed all of our sin under Jesus' feet. They haven't done anything with Jesus' body. God has placed them, the enemy, under Jesus' feet. And the enemy that, that God has placed under Jesus' feet that should make us so excited is the enemy of death. And yet, Mary looks at that tomb and she doesn't really know what's going on, right? Understandably. I um, spent many Saturdays, the first Saturday of every month for several years, walking to a local public school where I met a man by a bin, by a rubbish bin. He would be there with his daughter. And he was a very successful lawyer. And I would be there sometimes early Saturday morning with one of my children. We would meet this lawyer and his daughter they were equipped with plastic bags and latex gloves for anyone in our neighborhood that wanted to come on a rubbish pickup day. We're going to beautify our neighborhood, make our neighborhood a beautiful place, right? So I was there because I wanted to prove to my neighbors that Christians cared about the neighborhood. I was a pastor. We don't just care about heaven, we care about earth, we care about the trash on the sidewalk. And my lawyer friend, he was there to prove to me that you can be a good person and not be a Christian. And so there we were, both with our self-righteous agendas, picking up trash. And the reason I'm wasting your time with this story that's barely worth mentioning is that month after month, I assure you, 
there was plenty of new rubbish on the streets. Like we never solved anything. You see where I'm going with this? We, if your goal is to leave this planet a little better than you found it, like you won't. Let me just, you're not going to any more than my friend and I improved our neighborhood. You might think, oh, people looking out their bay window will see these wonderful people with their latex gloves picking up rubbish and they'll think, I need to be more careful. Or teenagers riding by on their bicycles seeing us pick up their really yucky stuff. They'll think, oh no, I, I'm never throwing away anything again. I, I'm going to take, take my rubbish home. No, that, that thought never once occurred to anybody in our neighborhood. It was pointless exercise, month after month, leaving the planet a better place. You know what's so pathetic about so many of our well-motivated goals in life is we never take on the real project that has to happen. Someone needs to take on the project not of rubbish in the streets, but what is going on in someone's heart and mind that they would just drop stuff, right? Someone needs to take on the project, not just our behavior or our speech or how honest or virtuous or sinful or weird we might be. No, someone has to take on the project of what's inside of us that's making all of this happen. And someone needs to take on the project of death, of the tomb itself. Mary is looking there at the tomb. She knows that Jesus changed her life, cast seven demons out of her. She looks at that tomb. Who's going to take on the tomb project, the grave project? My lawyer friend and I, we couldn't even solve the trash problem. But who will solve the grave problem? If you read through the Old Testament, wonderful stories in there. And the constant refrain at the end of every story is, and he died and was buried. He died, he died, he died. We learn about all these people. Noah, Abraham, David, the prophets. They died, they died, they died. And now we get to John 20. Jesus died, that's it. And, and who's going to take on that problem of the grave, of death itself? So, I don't know what would get you up and running from your seat, literally, right now. Because some of you, you're like, I don't run. Okay. But what would get you running if you had to? <laughs> Maybe a life and death situation, an emergency. Simon and John, they are there in some house. Mary comes to them. She had been running. Then how do they respond? They begin to run. And I love it that John got there first. They were running together for a while. And then John outrun him because John is the younger one. He's in better cardiovascular shape. He gets there first. But does he go in? No, because that's not his character. Peter, you know Peter, he just barges in, goes in. And so John goes with him. But running, what is it going to take for you to not just have like, yeah, I, I've heard about Easter, heard about Jesus. One of these days, I might look into it, right? I might get around to that someday. No, th this is life and death stuff. You, you get out of your chair, you run. 
And what's, what's the equivalent that we're looking for? You, you need to investigate the evidence. You need to read John's eyewitness account and see. See, see what it's all about. You, you run to find out. This is because what I was trying to say before, all of Mary's life, that change Jesus brought, it would just be a temporary emotional change unless he has risen from the dead. Then it's a real change. Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Good stuff in there, but it only is relevant for all eternity if he has risen from the dead. So John outruns Peter. They get there, and what do they see in the tomb? Have you ever had a house guest that when they left after staying with you for three days, you thought, did they, were they even here? Like, they took the squeegee in the bathroom and they made everything really pretty and they, I don't know what else they did. And you, like, they made the bed, like, were they in the military? They know how to make beds. Um, yeah. And so maybe Jesus was just one of those house guests because when he leaves the tomb, he folds his linens. Isn't that great? He, he, he didn't just leave everything a big mess. He even folded. No. What's, what's this about? When they get there, something is going on here. It's not that John was polite and he waited for Peter. Something more significant is happening. John and Peter are going to be the first two eyewitnesses of what's inside and what is not inside that tomb. And so John waits for Peter to catch up, catches his breath, so that when Peter does enter, Peter is entering a, an evidence scene that is not tampered with, okay? So it's not like, oh, one of them is going to be like, did you mess things up? Did you fold those linens, John? No. You saw I was standing here. You caught up. Now we are both going in. And what do they see? They see evidence that seriously undermines Mary Magdalene's theory. She had an understandable theory. They have stolen the body. Grave robbing was a thing. Even though there's details that you know about the stone being so big and the government seal on the stone making it less attractive to do that kind of grave robbing. But when they see the linens there, it totally undermines the grave robbing theory because, come on, you and I are going to go rob some graves tonight, some fresh corpses. And the first thing we're going to do because we have plenty of time, I guess. We're not worried about getting caught. Let's spend some time at the crime scene unrolling the body from the linens and then carry an awkwardly unwrapped corpse with us. I mean, just think about some of those details. No, if you are going to grab this thing, you're going to grab it and go with the wrapper on. It's like, thanks for putting a wrapper on. This was good. No, if the wrappers are left behind... This certainly undermines the grave robbing thing. Of course, there was a grave robber, right? It was the grave robber Mary did not suspect. And we never suspect the person who's there at the crime scene each and every time, right? So 
Mary did not understand, but nor did Pete, neither did Peter understand. In fact, John even includes himself in the list of ignorant people. He says there in verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture. They did not understand. Now I say John puts himself in there, and I've been calling him John, but you know what he calls himself. He calls himself earlier in verse 2, the one whom Jesus loved. And in case you think that that's an arrogant label, like, oh, Jesus likes some of you, but I'm the one Jesus loved, that's not John's point. When he writes 1 John, one of his letters, he says, look, behold, take a look at this, the love of God that we should be called sons and daughters of God. So John thinks about every believer in Christ as someone that Jesus loved. But why am I emphasizing here that John calls himself the one Jesus loved? Because I believe that it's connected to believing. John is the one who saw the evidence that morning and believed. Without seeing Jesus yet, within an hour, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus with her eyes. She believes. Later that day, Peter sees Jesus face to face and believes. John, the one Jesus loved, he believes without seeing anything other than the empty tomb and the grave clothes. Where is John going with this? He wants you and me, who don't have the advantage of walking into the empty tomb, to have an even greater advantage. The advantage of the blessing of not seeing and yet believing. And he puts it this way. It's so weird, I think. He says there, verses 8 leading into 9, he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. If you try to just meditate on the connection between verse 8 and 9, it might really challenge you like it's challenged me. I think what John is saying is, I'm a little apologetic to be telling you that I saw and then that's why I believed. But God had it be that in my case because I didn't yet understand the Bible. So what is John saying? He's saying, you could understand the Bible. You could understand what the Old Testament said, and then you would have an even stronger foundation for believing. Peter talks about this in one of his letters. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What prophetic word is Peter talking about? Well, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after John 20, um, Peter quoted Psalm 16 that said, God's holy one would not decay in the grave. And Peter said, that Psalm 16 was David looking forward to the Messiah. And here, Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So to Peter, the word of God, the Old Testament, is like a light shining in the darkness. He says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The Bible is this light bringing knowledge into your ignorance, bringing goodness into your evil. It's this light. But then something even better happens than the Bible. The morning star rises in your heart. The Holy Spirit takes over your life. And listen to how Peter puts it. The same Peter who did not believe when he saw the empty tomb. This is what Peter says years later in his letter, 1 Peter, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, he's writing to people, he's like, you haven't seen Jesus, I know that. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. So Peter experienced what it was like to see all the evidence and still not have the light go on in his heart and mind. And he knows that you and I don't have that advantage of seeing any evidence. But he says the morning star, God himself is going to rise in your hearts. The Bible shining this light, you're going to start putting it together by God's grace and understand that, yes, Jesus is the son of the living God. John called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. And Jesus who loves you isn't going to be content to just leave you in the dark. One of my favorite parts of the Bible is in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking to a young man who was very wealthy. And this young wealthy man, he did a calculation. He, he put his life through a formula and came to an answer on the other side of the equal sign. He decided, i rather keep my life and my lifestyle than follow Jesus and be one of his disciples. And we might think, what, what a loser of a person who would value their own life more than Jesus. But that's not how Jesus thought of that young man. Mark, in Mark chapter 10, says, right then, when that man was walking away from Jesus, Mark says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. John was not the only one that Jesus loved. Jesus loved people who were willing to choose themselves over him and walk away from him. So what is that going to mean for you? Uh, Jesus who loves you, who died for you, who rose from the dead, and might be palpably distant and absent to you right now, yet he loves you, and he's going to track you down. And it's my prayer that what Paul wrote will be true for you. Arise, awake, O sleeper. Get out of bed, get out of the land of the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Lord, we bring to you our confusion and our questions. We bring to you our confident uh, assumption that we know what's going on. We bring to you ourselves wherever uh, we are, 
uh, spiritually, and we ask, O oh God, that you would deal with us as graciously and as lovingly as you dealt with Mary and Peter and John, that you would shine your light upon us, give us new hearts, new life. May we enter this new world that began when Christ walked out of the tomb. Lord, would you change our lives forever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.